Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Turn up the radio and sing along. It's time for another great song. This is the Great Song Podcast. Seasons greetings and welcome once again to the Great Song Podcast. I'm Rob Alley. I am JP Mosier. And we're here breaking down the greatest songs in modern music history. We're going to tell you why they're great, what makes them awesome, and why we think you're cool. JP, how you doing today, man? Fantastic, Rob. <laughs> Fantastic. I would love to tell you what I'm doing, but I'm ready to dive into this magnet. Oh, I'm so hyped to bring you this episode. Uh, this is an XL episode. We just sat down for 90 minutes with one of my musical heroes. One of my top five all-time favorite albums is by this guy, Martin Page. We're talking about In the House of Stone and Light. Let's give it a listen. stony and full of light (laughs) seriously you guys i'm i'm i've been freaking out all day uh getting ready for this interview um this is one of my literal all-time favorite albums if you haven't heard it uh and and if it gets a a weirdly not an odd ratio of airplay now versus to when it was like a hit this song was number one uh on the on the ac charts and I feel like I heard it every half hour on the radio when I was, you know, when it came out. Um, now it gets surprisingly little airplay comparatively to other songs from that time. I feel like something happened. You know what I mean? Like, did they get mad at it because it was so <laughs> awesome? I don't know. Did it blow up their, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, anyway, uh, but if, if you have never heard this album, pause what you're doing right now so that you can experience this album. Go listen to it and then come back so that you can get this insight from Martin because it's so good. He goes, he goes deep on stuff. He's a, he's a very generous interview, uh, and, and he talks about all kinds of things, his creative process, uh, his life before and after this, and, and his uh, you know, band members and, and just all sorts of things, like philosophies on He does meet that. the band better than we ever could. Absolutely. And a great gear section, some personal stuff. It's awesome. Yeah, so. I just feel like we, we really got to connect with him on a couple of things, you know, um, and so um, it's such a big deal uh, for us to be able to do this. And so we're excited to bring it to you, an XL episode of the Great Song Podcast. Uh, so, uh, Yeah, you guys might know Martin Page from, uh, he wrote We Built This City. 
and these dreams and other things too. Yeah, so he's uh, uh, king of wishful thinking yeah, and absolutely. faithful by Go West. He's got tons of songwriting credits to his name as just a songwriter. Um, he's got a, seriously, a laundry list of, of cuts and hits and number ones, um, as a songwriter in the house of stone and light was his debut solo album as an artist. Um, and to me, it's just one of the, the, my favorite things. It has such a feel to it. It is a, it is a complete feel unto itself. It has kind of its own universe. And he kind of talks about it later on in the interview. There, um, you know, a couple spots to him that, that feel like they are, uh, next door neighbors to the rest of the album, but that it kind of has its own. This album has its own ecosystem. It's <laughs> it's like it really does. It's 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 got its own it, very uniqueness uh, to it. And we were excited to find out um, that he is now working on a what he considers kind of a brother to this album. So for me, I like so jumped te- out my chair. There's a teaser for you. Yeah. Um, so grab yourself a, a bag of cashews yep. and a hot tea and a hot tea and sit down and listen to our, on our, the bus. our interview with Martin page. That's right. Here it is. Martin page. Go. This is the great song podcast. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen, with the one and only Martin page. Uh, I can't tell you guys how excited I am for this interview. Uh, his 1994 album in the house of stone and light is one of my all time top five desert Island quintessential, uh, albums. It's one of those that I listen to front to back, never get tired of, uh, never skip a song except for one. And I'll get to that later. Um, (laughs) but occasionally it's just too much for me to handle. Um, but we're so excited to, to welcome the great Martin page today. Martin, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for that incredible intro. Wonderful. Well, it's the least we could do for this incredible uh, album uh, that you've released. Thank that you. I, seriously, in 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 my music life, it's been a huge influence and uh, and a, and a, something that I go back to, you know, constantly uh, as just a bedrock album for me. So uh, this is a big deal mm. for me. I told JP earlier. I was talking to him on the phone, getting everything ready. For on the technical side of things, and I was like, "Man, I'm just I'm nervous today, and I don't, you know, freaking out." <laughs> and I've known Rob for a long time, and he doesn't get nervous yeah. much. Ah, so this is a big deal ah. for him. This big is, deal. This is his uh, Super Bowl. You can calm. You can calm down. Everything's okay. It's right. going to be all right. I'll do what I can. <laughs> you relax yourself. Slow down a little bit, and it's going to be all right. <laughs> all right. Take a deep breath. <laughs> I'll do it. <sighs> okay. Um, so. Um, hey, first, I, I just got to say, I just got to say there that when you said about an album that stick, that you always return to, that that's a huge compliment to me because growing up as a musician, and still now, I still have those albums that I return to because they become like um, great books, great references to go back to inspire. And I, I had that as a, a as a musician starting up. You know, I'd always lean back to the. An album by Blue Nile or an album by Peter Gabriel and I, or Early Genesis, and I just think these are the bedrocks that um, will inspire me to go on. So what you just said there is really what I've always hoped for: is you make something which is a little that lasts a little bit longer than just a release date. Outstanding. Well, we are. Um, I know we're actually about a year early on this, but we are billing this as the official first. 25th anniversary interview uh, of, of In the House of Stone and Light. I know that, that'll technically be next year, but we wanted to claim it first. Um, so- I'm a bit worried. You might think that I'm about to die or something, so you can't push it all up. But no, I'm nervous now. I'm nervous. <laughs> we're, just, we're just trying to get ahead of the marketing curve. Um, 
So uh, uh, we'll talk to you mostly, you know, focused on that today, but I'm sure we'll tangent into some other things. Um, Okay. But uh, for example, I I wanted to ask you, I know you had um, a very kind of interesting road to becoming a songwriter and an artist. Can you kind of walk our listeners through that who may not know kind of that arc and and your initial draw to songwriting and what, 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 what came before that even? Well, I, I, I grew up in Southampton in England uh, around the, in the 60s. So um, I was very, very fortunate that I was right there when the Beatles broke um, in 1964. And, of course, in England at that time, that was a change of everything. That culture changed. Uh, we had color TVs for the first time in England. And we, we, when we suddenly the Beatles appeared on TV. And it just, um, you know, it, it was a, a sea change. And as a young lad... Um, I was being groomed to be a soccer player in England. So I, I, at, at 15 years old, I was playing, you know, for Southampton Football Club. And that's what I was going to be. But suddenly on TV appeared the, uh, these four lads who um, I couldn't believe wrote songs like that. And I didn't even then I didn't know really what songs were, but everything they seemed to do to me went into my bones and went into my blood. And so even though I was in the 60s going to be a soccer player around the age of 18, I just fell in love with the, the concept of um, being a musician. I, by being in my soccer team, they take me to different cities to play. And when I was in London, I would go into the clubs. And at the same time, I was here in Motown and I was hearing great American music, um, which I was dancing to and thinking, my God, you know, this is, this is another world altogether. And it basically overpowered my desire to be a soccer player. And I just wanted to be a musician. I fell in love with the bass guitar and joined various bands. I was at art college for a while, as all English musicians are, because we get given a grant and we don't spend the money on our art supplies. We spend it on our bass guitar and our amplifier, and we travel around the country. (laughs) It's a a good way to go. Yeah, it was a good way to go. And um, I joined a few bands, ended up in London after playing around all around the country. And um, while I was playing around the country, we were playing in American air bases, and um, so I was listening to a lot of American music. My father at that time was in America working for British Aerospace and NASA. And every now and then I get a chance to go over to see him. That was in the Carolinas down south where they were doing all the tests on Harrier jump jets. And um, all I heard was James Brown, black music and um, Parliament and Bootsy Collins and I and Brothers Johnson. And so I fell into at the same time as the Beatles, I was falling into this rhythmic thing as a bass player. Make a long story short, I, in London, I joined, uh, made it, uh, formed my first band, Q Phil, with my partner, Brian Fairweather, who was a guitarist. And um, eventually, um, we had a, a release, a first release on Jive Records in London, which did nothing in Europe, but in, uh, in Los Angeles, um, on K-Rock at that time, early 80s. A song called Dancing in Heaven, which was a tech rock song, very much like Tom Dolby. It just exploded, and that allowed me to come across and start from there. That's where really it all started, 80s, early 80s, where my, my band Q-Feel had a hit underground in America, and I came across, and um, I didn't go back. I just thought, this is the place I have to stay, because all the songwriting I've always loved, more than anything, uh, is generated from America. So I felt like I was coming to a university. You know, America to me, particularly Los Angeles, which is the songwriting capital, I thought, this is better than art college. This is better than anything. I'm going to learn a lot more here. And so really from the 80s, um, my career as a songwriter, 
more than even a bass player started then in Los Angeles. Now, you threw a few things out there in the initial part that I just have to touch on. You're from England. I couldn't tell by your accent. You sound just like <laughs> yeah, us here. <laughs> yeah, you said, a lot of people get I thought you were from, from Nyota, Tennessee there. <laughs> yeah, or New York. It's between the two. <laughs> it's a strange, strange mixture. Yeah, you know, it's, people say to me that I haven't lost my accent, but... Uh, you know, I remember about 10 years ago speaking to my grandmother in England, and she, she said, you've turned into a yank. And I thought, well, I don't think so. I've still got that Hampshire accent because where I was born was Southampton, which is really uh, right down south. And so we, we have a bit of that wire going on, you know, the pirate thing. Yeah. Um, I did but, notice um, that you I, said I did notice that you said <laughs> soccer as opposed to football. Soccer which, instead of football. Yeah, that yeah, caught me off guard. I think you're quite right there that it's um, influenced me too much by being. I, I've, I now realise I'm living. I've been living in America as long as I was in England, so I'm right down the middle. And um, as and we still play, we still kick a ball around here in LA now and then. So uh, we hear soccer appearing. But yes, it's a, it's a word that I'm told by my English like don't use the word. <laughs> do, you, do you follow? You sound like an American. Come on. <laughs> do you still follow soccer? Did you? Enjoy the oh, World yeah. Cup? Are you a Neymar guy, a Messi guy, a Ronaldo guy? Who, who's your um, Who's your you guy? Know, um, because England did better than we ever thought, and there was a moment when England beat Sweden, then we thought, oh, my God, we might even get to the final and do something here. So I think English supporters were always a bit pessimistic. The English were always reserved. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden we then, oh, my God, we're going to do it. We're really going to go. And then we all got excited, and then it stopped, which is totally English. You know what I mean? It's like, you know. Now we're going to let ourselves go, and oh god, we've just lost. So there was a bit of. <laughs> well, me but and, we did. It was a great World Cup. It was a great World Cup. Me yeah. and Rob are both Atlanta Braves fans, so uh, so we uh, we That's understand good. the excitement of where it could be and where it once was, yeah. and just not quite being back there. So maybe this is yeah, our you year. know you're scared. To, you're, you're a little scared to come out of yourself and go. Come on, let's cheer this English team because we sort of know the next round is going to be very disappointing so <laughs> we, we grow up we grow up going yeah maybe oh yeah maybe and of course my era um 1966 back in england we actually won the world cup and uh, you know that was ingrained in us we, we have won it once and it was very seminal to us so uh yeah, we this this World Cup was I think was a very good World Cup because the goals were amazing and there was a lot of a lot of good football played. I enjoyed it. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, Bootsy Collins as an influence and 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 getting into the um, kind yeah. of funk and soul music of the you know the Southern United States. Um, yeah. As far as bass players, who who else would you name among influences a bass player? Uh, it's a great question. I'm, I'm really glad you asked that because. Um, you know, recently I've just been you know, playing with the musicians again on another album I'm working on, and I was playing bass again, and I thought, this is really my love. You know, this is where I started. And uh, I, I, out of all the instruments, I've, I've luckily learned a little bit to play. The bass seems to be born into me. But I, I grew up again, you know, obviously Paul McCartney, um, because he was so melodic. And um, and then from that, I went a little bit into, you know, the the... Chris Squire of Yes, uh, England's greatest bass players, and, and Rutherford from early Genesis. So progressive music sort of hit me in England. Yeah. But of course, when I arrived in America, all I heard on the radio was this, this in, incredible soul music. And uh, so Louis Johnson of the Brothers Johnson, when he got the slap technique, um, Larry Graham, and uh, 
you know, of course, we've got Jaco Pastorius, mm. which just just blew our heads off. Nobody sure. really knew how what we were listening to. So, uh, and I would, I, as I was learning bass, I would just buy every record under the sun, everything, even Verdine White, Earth, Wind and Fire. I would just learn. I never learned from reading music or going to college. So it was all from learning from forty-five records, playing vinyl. Um, but those bass players, and and some person I don't mention enough is uh, John Entwistle from the Who, was a very underrated bass player. But that's the core of where I started everything. I all even in, um, you're in even in this song you're talking about House of Stone and Light in the in the bridge section, I slapped the bass, which is yeah. just not something that English guys tend yeah. to do. <laughs> you know, we uh, it's not our thing, and so you know it was beautiful and to actually be able to utilize that in some of the writing I did. And obviously, I think I was very fortunate from learning from black musicians it allowed me when i worked with earth wind and fire and bands like go west and paul young who were soul influenced i i had a kind of um inroad already a kind of sense of um how to touch r&b so but it's it's wonderful you brought that question up because i never get asked that i never get asked about really? that. no 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 nobody seems to realize that i'm a bass player and really that's and just recently i picked up the bass with the musicians and it was all like oh this is this is natural. I'm not even thinking about it. This is where I come from. I, and I truly believe that all my songwriting started from here in the low end, the harmonic base of um, songwriting. Obviously, Elton John, you know, um, and um, Dee Murray, I thought was a br- brilliant bass player. And so when I really think about it now, it's, it's learning the bass to some of these incredible records that I bought, you know, selling uh, England by the Pound, Genesis, and then uh, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. I was learning the bass, but as I was learning the bass, I was listening to the melody and listening to chords. So my bass was my first button into um, wanting to write songs, I think. It's funny that you mentioned that people don't see you first as a bass player, because obviously no. your songwriting is extremely strong. But when me and Rob were talking before, we so many of our questions that we wanted to throw at you revolved around you being a bass player like i was talking about your gear that you used then versus what you use now i'd love to hear a little bit about some gear Oh, you're my kind of man you're my kind of man (laughs) i never get i never get asked those questions well fire away all right man. we're gear nuts so this is our oh good 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 so am i i mean i'm in i'm in a studio now in my house called the owl's nest and i have um all my bases around me but uh i i play a music man bass stingray um because I basically, uh, when I saw Louis Johnson slapping, I knew that was the kind of compressed tone I wanted. Before that, I was playing a Gibson Grabber because um, I'd seen Louis playing one of those very rare Gibson. Um, yeah, I don't even know what that bass. is. Sorry. I say I'm a yeah, gear nut, and then you mention something. I'm like, okay, well, you, what's you, that? You go, looking, you go, go looking for a Gibson Ripper or a Gibson Grabber. They're very rare, but they, um, they are good. And I toured with with that. An hour in England, I played the Aria bass, which is you'll see a lot with the when um, Duran Duran were mm-hmm. always on. Too. That's the beautiful Aria basses. Um, and and I used to play through um, a Trace Elliott um, amplifier system, um, mainly because I'd also been around level forty two when uh, Mark King was playing through the Elliott, and I thought that was a beautiful sounding um, cabinet, and. Um, of course, I do like playing the Fenders, and I I do enjoy playing the jazz bass and stuff, which uh, I do, you know I've seen Verdine White using a lot. But my my pure and and of course I've got two Rickenbackers because I grew up again through sure. progressive, yeah, progressive rock. And every now and then when I want to use and I I play with my thumb, 
a, a great deal now, but sometimes when I first played, it was always with a pick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever I go to the Rickenbacker, I, I, because of that, it's such an un, a, unusual sounding bass, I use a pick. But um, yeah, um, I still find myself walking into Guitar Center and just standing in front of all the basses hanging on the, on the walls and drooling. I just <laughs> I go into a kind of I go into a kind of dizzy spell for a while and just become a kid again. But um, that, my favorite bass I've ever played is a. Uh, uh, stingray bass. Um, that's my all-time uh, music man. Stingray. I, I can't uh, find anything wrong. That's my go-to bass. Well, when you, uh, being as that you are a bass player, when you go to to write a song, do you typically start by picking up an acoustic guitar or like a piano? What do you? What's your instrument when you go to write the musical part, or do you try to write it, it from yeah, the bass? It's well, in the early years when I didn't know much, I did write on the bass. Of the soul bands and um, pretty crap songs, you know. <laughs> the time. Get down, get up, get down, get up, get up. It just riffs, you know. And then my guitarist say, "What chords are on that?" So I don't know, I don't know. But I like <laughs> and then I soon realised that most of my melodies just stayed in that. Get up, get down, get up, get up. And, uh, so I've got to go farther than that. Uh, I tend to write more now, and really also through the years of when I was really um, having those hits and everything. And how soon I was, I go to the piano, I go to the keyboards. Um, I can get around um, synthesizers quite well, and of course they came into the picture perfectly for me in the eighties. Good I timing could. when you were starting to. Yeah, I might mean, t- tell me about it. You know, when I think about it, when I listen to classical music, I go, "These guys never had what we've got." You know, like you can put your hand down on a synthesizer and hear an orchestra. And yeah. really, in the eighties, <laughs> when Phil Collins broke and Gabriel were breaking, I was doing the same thing. I was able to create chords in a very simplistic fashion. And create a romantic atmosphere. So I tend to go straight to a piano or a synthesizer and, and go through chords. And uh, the bass really does come towards the end of everything. Um, and I have to focus more on, um, as there was a period in my career when I was writing songs where even my manager said, you know, you don't seem to be fundamentally concentrating on the bass so much. And I was saying, no, I'm just thinking about melody and then the song and the, vo- and the vocals and the harmonies. And over the last few years, I've had to... Re- sort of say to myself now when you record the bass uh pagey let's pretend that this is a session you know let's pretend that you're sitting down you want to do the best performance you can and not just ground the song just hold it together so you know i i did go through from the 80s on a real de- defined effort to try and learn chords um progressions keys music um jazz classical i i wanted to move away from the bass so that i could understand harmonic possibilities and so then the bass went a little teeny bit to the second behind me not used and i would go up front towards the keyboard so when i write it's usually keyboard because it's easy to sit down in front of a synthesizer and play a chord and go oh i can hear i can hear a world there as you say daddy i i think that period when our drum machines came you know and synthesizers in uh the 80s it, w- it was a dream for people like me that could that weren't rudimentally trained but could um you know as we saw with phil collins you can sit down and you can hop you can you can create something pretty special um we had it i think you had to learn you know you had to understand how to get around a synthesizer and in fact when i came to america in the 80s with my partner brian fairweather we were aware in england because it was a little head we were aware of the fair like the synclavier we knew how to program a Jupiter 8, we knew about synthesizers. And in America, in L.A., it was new. It hadn't really broken through when we arrived uh, in, in America. 
only Kim Carnes with Betty Davis' eyes had we really heard that American was trying to get into that romantic, new age, new wave, sorry, new wave kind of vibe. So it was very useful that we played around on synthesizers because Los Angeles in the 80s just opened the doors to us and said, you know, we want to use synthesizers, but we don't know how to use them. So wow. as, as two English guys, you know, um, we were able to walk in with our briefcases and go, we know exactly what you need to do. <laughs> we're here. Don't worry. <laughs> yes. We are the doctors of the synthesizers. Move out of the way. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your about your writing process, but you know, part of what we do, and I'm so grateful. You said you've listened to a couple episodes of the show, so you know that basically yeah. what we do yeah. is we just celebrate songs that we love uh, and uh, and yeah. and the things that we love about them. Um, and so I'm I'm, yeah. I'm always interested to hear um, you know a little bit about your writing process and what goes into these songs that we you know now have had with us for so long. Um, and I know yeah. you know I, I want to ask you a little bit about co-writing and then a little bit about writing solo. Um, right. You had some uh, uh, immediate success uh, with Bernie Toppin, who most of our listeners would know uh, from being a longtime uh, partner with uh, Elton John and, you know, lyricist for so many. Um, but, you're, you, you know, you scored two uh, number one hits with each of the first two songs that you co-wrote with Bernie. Uh, yeah. How did you initially get linked up with uh, Bernie Toppin and what does a writing session with the two of you uh, look like? Well, the, um, the thing with Bernie Taupin is um, an anomaly to, to the way I work. I've ever worked with other people because he he just gives you the lyric up front, like he does with Elton. He okay. writes the lyric before the song is done. And um, the story of us getting together was again a, a rather magical because I at that time I said to you the beginning of the eighties I was in town with Brian, my partner, and and, every, and my record was on the radio, and, and it was a different kind of sound. So all the record companies and all the publishers that we were visiting um, with enthusiasm were very interested in this new sound. Um, I bumped into um, a publisher at Chapel um, who handled Bernie Taupin's work, and he'd heard and he, my uh, Dancing in Heaven, the record, and it, we were also... We were writers as well, so we were playing these demos that we'd written in England that sounded like Doobie Brothers, sounded like Toto, mm -hmm. sounded like anything. We were all over the place. We could do reggae, we could do everything. We were like, we were very um, a kaleidoscope of styles. So we go to the record companies and go, "Yes, you've heard us for these new sounds, but here's a ballad, you know, and mm -hmm. here's here's a, a disco song." And we were just in the, We wanted to be the next Bugatti Musker, the uh, uh, Holland Dozier Holland. We wanted to be. Um, Lennon and McCartney of the modern age. We had this idea that we were we, we could create hits for everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, the, this publisher said, um, Bernie Taupin, you know about him? I said, Oh my God! You know, I'm a I'm a huge Elton John fan, and I absolutely my favorite one of my favorite albums in the top five is you know uh, Good Goodbye Elbert Road. He goes, Well, Bernie's not really working with Elton much now, and I want to motivate him. He said, because he's really not really being creative. And he said, would you be in a work room? I said, absolutely. You know, and he said, oh, do you mind if I play him your album? You know, Kufu. And I thought, well, he's going to hate that. I mean, it's like <laughs> Tom Dolby blinded by science. You know, he's going to go, what the, <laughs> what the is this? You know, I mean, it's just noises. It's just noises. And um, luckily, he came back and he was interested. He thought there were some things on that album that were at least, I think, intriguing to him. Um, and the publisher said, I wouldn't mind, you know, he's into meeting you. So I met with him, you know, just I was nervous and just thinking, my God, you know, there, to me, there's no better um, lyricist and 
in popular music than Bernie at that time. You know, I really thought that his, his even when I didn't know him and I was a kid, I would listen to read his words and say, this is from another space. This is romantic imagery from, you know, it's out and Alton's melodies are so great. But if you look at the words, there's something really unique going on here. Anyway, we hit it off. There's a lot of humor and we just joked together and, uh, I was having a little bit of success, and of course, he was open to ideas. And he said, "Why don't I send you two lyrics and see what you want to do with them?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 straight away. <laughs> yes, please, now, now." And anyway, um, I waited and I waited. Then suddenly, the old fax machine went, and in came two <laughs> lyrics. You know, it was like, "Oh, I was watching the words be printed down." And one of them was "We Built the City," and uh, the other one was called uh, "Boys in the Mist." which he'd written for Stevie Nicks, Boys in the Mist, but she, she passed on it. Well, Boys in the Mist eventually became These Dreams, uh, because in the bridge there was a lyric there that said These Dreams, and for some reason when I sat down at the piano and played the song through, this became the chorus. We Built the City is exactly as he sent me the lyric. I basically put the lyrics on a little table in front of my Jupiter 8, and I jammed. I just played along and sang. And like Elton says, I didn't really know what the songs were about. I just knew this was very poetic, very, very sharp. We Built the City was very unusual and oblique. And I dem the demo I did of it on a little A-track for Bernie, it was mainly to just impress Bernie, like, could this work? Bernie just threw these at me, like, you know, if you, let's see what you can do, kid. Yeah. And um, I did two demos. Um, we Built the City demo and These Dreams. And I had to call him about These Dreams because, and I was nervous. I said, you know, um, do you mind if I move a lyric around because I want to use These Dreams as the chorus. Boys in the Mist doesn't quite, it, it doesn't quite work for what I'm doing. I was very nervous. And he said, bet, no, yeah. no, no, Elton does that. He said, Elton moves things around. And I'm sure Bernie was like, let's see what he does. Sure. So I really worked hard on this little Fox Tex 8-track and did the demo of We Built the City very different to the record you hear. It's, it's very dark and like Shock, Shock the Monkey by Peter Gable, very different. And then I did These Dreams, a bit like Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark. I saw it like a candle in the wind lyric, but I did it very synthesizer and very um, Made of Orleans by Orchestra Maneuvers, trying to be modern. I sent him the two cassettes and just waited, and I thought, I don't know how he's going to take this. But then he um, luckily called me up and said, I, I dig this. I like it. And he said, this has moved me into a brand new place. I'm enjoying this. And uh, God, you know, we put the, we put the cassettes out um, around the publishers. And um, I'd done some work with this producer, Peter Wolf, um, who's a keyboard player, not the one from Jay Giles. And he was about to work with Hart. He got on the airplane with them and played them a demo. They freaked out and wanted to do these dreams. And we and Peter Wolf took we built the city for the new starship record he was trying to do just to move them into a new area and within six months we'd had two number ones bernie and i and and we went on you know we just thought it works um and uh it was a time when bernie wasn't really working without much i think bernie was sorry elton was using a different lyricist and so bernie was very very open to um, trying some things with me and we really got on I mean we wrote a lot of songs together and we got some more cuts and and quite um, on major records and we enjoyed it and then I was able to work with him on his solo record it was a really good period and then he returned to Elton when they they started to blend together again and uh, I moved in to do my solo career but that's how I work with Bernie which is very different I mean, he's not in the room with me at all you, know, mm -hmm. you just you know you wait for the facts to move and you just pull the paper out and because he's such a rhythmic writer when i sing to his words 
um, the song writes itself. He's just, a, it's very easy for me to do. Nobody, they weren't sure if I was, a lot of writers I've spoken to said that I could never work like that. I could never work off of a lyric that's already there. But Bernie writes very lyrically. And sometimes he'd say to me when we were writing the song, he said, when you read this through, think of Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones. Uh-huh. Or when you read this through, think of this kind of song. And so he'd give me clues. Um, and then off I went. Um, we were a good blend because I was very um, rhythmic oriented and Bernie again, you know, he writes in very rhythmically as well, lyrically. But as Elton said, you know, I never really knew what I was writing. I mean, I just used to sing the songs and go, this sounds good. You know, and after people would say to me, what does rebuilt the city in these dreams mean? And I was like, mm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> ask him, right. ask him. <laughs> But then when I worked with other people, like Go West on King of Wishful Thinking, we were, I, I would always want three weeks on my own before I worked with somebody because I hated writing in the room with somebody and nothing happened. I mean, I, I, it was my biggest fear that you just sit in a room and go like, you know, how have you been? Uh, you know, let me pick my nose for a while. Uh, I was terrified of that. So I would do loads of preparation and then somebody would walk in and I'd say, let me play you three or four ideas. And if one strikes you good, we'll move on. And that's how it's been when I've collaborated. I like a little teeny bit of time ahead to get, and I usually know who, what the artist is about. And then I would, so King Wishful Thinking, I had the roots of the idea. Then the two lads knocked it out with me and we worked together. And the same with Paul Young. Um, same with Earth, Wind and Fire. But as Maurice White took me as a, 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 as a friend, I used to get involved in lyrics with him and on the spot we used to do some things. But mainly, if I was working with somebody else, um, I would want a couple of weeks ahead now, I'd set the, uh, so I could get lots of spirit going on before they arrived. And, of course, if something didn't work, I would be able to play another song and say, what do you think it is? Uh, sure. What about that? Uh, instead of us going like, well, that was nice. Nothing happened. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> so, which was my, my nightmare of life. That's my biggest nightmare is just not having ideas up my sleeve. And I used to pretend that I was making these ideas up on the moment. You know, I'd go like, well, <laughs> what about this? And I would play it, and, I, and they go, that's quite good. And I thought, well, that just came out of my head. But I'd been working on that about a month before. So there was a lot of, lot of illusion going on there. You know, a lot. But um, that's the way I worked with bands and song, song, songwriters um, in general. Bernie was always a little different. Robbie Robertson was a little different when I did his solo record in the sense that I would bring him things, and he would want me to leave them with him, my, my ideas. And then he'd call me back after about three weeks, and then he would say, um, I'm working on this concept you gave me. He was a little bit different because he wanted his own world to create in. So I was constantly going back and forwards. And it's interesting because I'm writing a little book about all the people I wrote with, and we're piecing it together now like a memoir. And with these dreams, I really literally got the lyric and wrote it. And I'm not joking about this. It took two hours, uh, and I was off, and the song was done. But Fallen Angel, off of Peter, off of um, Robbie Robertson's first solo record, took took a year and a half. The same song, Fallen Angel, just back and forwards, back and forwards, as he was working out how he wanted to work on it, what it meant. So a song can come in two minutes, or a song can take a year and a half. So um, there's no rhyme or reason to it, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, you can't really, you can't really nail it down. Um, all you can do is turn up and be in the room and try and be in a good space to create. That's about the best you can do it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes it feels more like a song is about more like songwriting is about 
kind of um, catching a song that's trying to get out. And, yeah. and sometimes it feels more like, you know, trying to, um, you know, create the big bang, uh, you know, yeah, make, absolutely. Like make something impossible or, or, you know, take a, uh, take a block of stone and turn it into the Michelangelo's. Yes. David. Um, yeah. I think it's one of the hardest questions for songwriters to answer because I really, we don't think any of us really, really know why that, you know, I could write uh, like 20 songs in a year and one will be really good. And the others are all pretty good. There's a consistency there as you get good at what you do. But the ones that just have this thing as a psychological thing, I, I really don't. I, I think with all art, and I do see songwriting as, as a noble art, I think it is a lot to do with um, the psychology of the moment, the air, the pe- a lot of, a lot of um, spirit is involved in it. And I don't mean that in a religious way, but it is a, to do with how the mind is. You know, as Virginia Woolf would say, you know, all the world is mind. It, it's how you come into the room, how the air is, and all the preparation you've been doing for hundreds of years, it seems, right. playing in groups, playing the bass, learning records, writing lots of songs, loads of failures, loads of failures. And all of a sudden, you know, you score the goal, as they would say, you're on form. Um, and you meet the right people. That And also, looking back now through the years, I think that there is that analogy to a soccer player or a hockey player. You're on form. And you have 10 years when the vitality or mm-hmm. five years or three years of when the ingredients of your of your of everything, your body, your youth, your youth, the people around you, the love in your life, everything comes together. And you have a, a, a you have an on form period. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've had consistency for, for over over decades. But, you know, really, when I look back, I go, well, wow. you know, two number ones in six months, then all these chart hits. Um, then another burst. I think a lot of it is to do with um, loving what you do. And also, I think I've pointed out a little bit, is that you're in the room to try it again. Um, and you, for some reason, you just love doing it. But I really can't explain, you know, well, you use a C minor to a B flat, and uh, the tempo must be 110, and you must have orange hair. There's no... Um, <laughs> there's nothing... You know, I think even you doing this wonderful show, how many people have you spoken to who really can say this is the what you do? You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. It, it, it's a pretty unknowable, unexplainable thing. You know, I think that's, that's, yeah, I think that's what makes it pretty amazing to us always because we go, there's a, there's a tint of magic in there. There's a tint of magic. There's a tint of the sorcerer going on there, but that's what we all like to get near, but it's not always there, so... Well, me and Rob will keep in mind when, uh, whenever we write with you, we'll block off three weeks so we can hang out together and go. We'll go bowling yeah. and fishing and play mini sure. golf and do all those. Eastern and I will things. pretend. I will pretend when you come in that I'm writing those things as you're there. That's on the awesome. Moment. Just stand the by the spot, facts. Yeah. We'll fax you the lyrics over and just be ready. <laughs> you're my kind of collaborator. <laughs> um. I want to get kind of segue into the in the House of Stone and Light album, which is what we're supposed to be talking about. But you've got so much interesting stuff to talk about that it's taken us twenty oh. minutes to get there. Um, <laughs> I uh, I I have this theory about this album. Uh, first of all, the I, I do want to before we do that, I want to call the listeners' attention to something uh, in case they're not following you on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, if you're listening, make sure you follow uh, Martin on uh, Twitter and Facebook because he posts the most wonderful throwback. Uh, demos all the time. He's posting links to SoundCloud demos of songs of his that you know, some songs of his that you may not, or songs that became songs for other artists. And you get to hear kind of his original uh, vision for those yep. in demo form. And when I say demo form, it's not him like, you know, sitting with a piano. They're fully fleshed out, most of them 16 track 
you know, demos, and they're it's it's a fantastic peek into what these songs were before they became. Uh, you know, what you know them as. So if you're not doing that, uh, do it right now as you're listening. Go to Facebook, Twitter, follow Martin, and then you can get updates on his uh, uh, upcoming projects, uh, which we'll tell you about as well. Um, you're, you are a, a, a master of those demos. Like, they're, they're, they're just really good. They're really fleshed out. And I know you said you had a lot of practice, um, you know, yeah. with those before even you started using them for, uh, you know, pitching songs to other people and that kind of thing. Um, is Is... Did that just kind of come naturally to you? Like you said, well, I got this song. I better make it sound big, make, you know, make it sound mm. – is that, is that kind of how that works for you? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's a lot of truth in what you say there, there Rob. I, I mean, I was, I'm a fanatic. I was a fanatic uh, record collector. So I bought everything under the sun. Every weekend it was 10 or 12 albums up vinyl. And singles galore. So I just lived in that world. It was a beautiful escape for me. I, I lived in, in vinyl records from the age of 18 onwards. That was my love. And um, so when I came to become a songwriter, I looked at all the things I might be weak at. You know, like, um, he's not going to be the greatest singer in the world. He's not going to be the greatest keyboard player in the world. But I do understand records. I do understand production. I can hear. I know what they've done here. I can, I can see it. A little bit in the way Trevor Horn would have developed. I always see uh, a parallel there. So I, I saw as a strength for me um, uh, to, to really do, but get a, always have a good studio going. Understand reasonable engineering. Understand your 8-track. Make good demos. Make, it, make them as good as you can. And, of course, I started on 2-track, you know, and cassettes right back with Brian in London and Islington. We were working on just a Revox uh, tape machine with just two tracks and bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. Mm-hmm. And, but, 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 but we loved records. So we would listen to records and go, how did they do that? How did they do that? And then we would develop. And it was a thrill, a lot of fun. We're young. And uh, we start to learn about drum machines. We start to learn about uh, how records are made. And, of course, you know, Beatles were making great records on four tracks. And, we, and I went right through the period of two track, four track, eight track, 16, and now the Pro Tools, which is anything you, as you can dream of. So to me, I think if I really are honest about it, I, I thought um, my strength is to do work with people and make very good representations of what um, they'll take away mini records. They'll take away mini records. I'm making mini records in my house, and that's how I see it. And um, that's what I did. I took a lot of time on the demos, even though we, we built the city demo and these dreams were a little Fostex 8-track with just one keyboard and echoes. I spent a lot of time um, learning how to mix and to get good representations. Luckily, through the years I was in L.A., I would get a chance to work with the greatest engineers, um, Mick Kozowski with Earth, Wind & Fire, um, Mike Shipley, you know, Dolby and Def Leppard, and um, I, I, George Massenburg. Um, I had, a, I was really very, very fortunate. I was uh, uh, Joe Ciccarelli. I, I, and then when I was in with those rooms, my enthusiasm got me to be friends with them. And so I was able to slowly think, all I want is a garage in L.A., a garage, a double garage where I can put a decent studio in. And I can make, I mean, House of Stone Light is made in my house. The whole album is made, made in my garage. It was mixed outside, but the whole house in my garage, which I'm sat in now talking to you, was where that album and all my albums have been made. So it was all about my desire to have control of my creativity. And I think it's because I could see my weaknesses. I could see that I wasn't a guy who was going to walk into, the, into a shop and say, let me play the piano and I'll sing to you 
the national anthem. It was going to, I had to create, I had to, I had to be meticulous in how I built, very much as I see the career of possibly Trevor Horn and Peter Gabriel to a, a, a degree. So making those demos was me trying to um, leap into and to show off how good these songs really could be. Um, you know, um, they, when, when I sit, sit here and think that In the House of Stone Light was number one, but that's from my garage. That's right. me singing in this room I'm talking. <laughs> that made me think, okay, you know, we, it's, it is a world of illusion, but um, we can, you know, it's how you see the record. And um, I always wanted to make records. And so to me, also, if I really wanted to win a collaboration, you know, if Go West were coming to work with me, I did not want to fail. If Paul Young or, um, let's say, I was going to work with Robbie Robertson again, I did never want to fail. So what I handed over on that cassette, they had to play in their car or mm. to their girlfriends or in their, and they had to be impressed away from me. You know what yeah, I mean? They had yeah. to go like, this is good. That's Excuse my French there. But there had to be that moment when I thought, when they leave my house and I can't do this, the gift of the gab and and. The, give them a cup of tea and love them and everything. When they leave the house, they have to put that into the car while they're being distract, distracted by business and go, my goodness, I think we've done something. This sounds like what's on the radio now. This sounds like we could compete. So my, my job was to create a, uh, a quite uh, 2001 Space Odyssey on a cassette. You know, <laughs> I, needed to make, I needed to make them take something away and go, that was nice, yeah, great. And it, it, but then they'd play it and some, their girlfriend would say, is that you? That's really good. You know, recently <laughs> oh, I just put cool. out, yeah, I just put out a little um, uh, throwback Thursday of Pete Cox, you know, the lead singer from Go West, and, <laughs> and his fans thought it was a record, you know, and like, where did this come from and why oh. did we hear this? But that, and it was a demo that we did, and we thought, no, that's not going to go on, on anything. It's, we're, we're building up to something. So I think it's the desire to um, uh, obviously impress in the moment, but also my thing was I can't, use the gift of the gab around these guys all the time. They have to live with my music away from me. Even A&R men, you know, record companies, they have to be playing it in their car and going, there's something here. So I thought I've really got to be making records at home. The demos are records. They have to, they have to do more than just go, it's a demo. It, yes, right. but it has to be almost like... And my problem, actually, guys, was um, everybody used to say to me, we can't beat the demo. You know, we're recording oh. it now, and we can't beat it. And would you come in and play something on it or do... And so a lot of the times, um, for recently with, well, not re too recently, but when I was working um, with Robbie Williams, that he just used the, my demo, and, and we just took it to the studio and he sang on it. And Josh Groban did the same. It was almost like I was meeting sometimes, like the demo's too good and we don't want to record it because we won't beat it. And oh, some, wow. of the Paul, some of the, Paul, yeah, on Paul Young's album, uh, the, the Crossing, uh, Don was just transferred over what I did in my garage, and he and uh, even Paul's vocal, and he kept it all, and just had Jeff Picaro uh, from Toto play the drums, yep. and so it it did me a lot of good. But at the same time, I used to get a little frustrated because I'd listen to the records and go, they haven't caught the imagination or the spirit we've got in they the demo. They didn't see your vision on some of them, right? Yeah, or the, or the or the moment of the feel, you know. Okay, um, got it. Obviously, when you when you when a guy sings on the demo, like. You're, you're friendly with the artist and they're into it. Then they go to the studio and do it again and they've lost a little bit of that. Uh, yep. You know, some of the vocals I do on, on my records are the first three vocals I'll do. I'll do a lot, but the first three, I've usually I've got something which is just um, carefree mm -hmm. and learning the song and something magic can happen with that, you know. So 
Yeah, I live off of demos, and then I realized later in the years that my demos became my records. It was like it was very rare that I would recut them. When I was doing the demo, I'd have in the back of my mind, like, this is possibly going to be the record. So even though we're going to experiment here, let's prepare it as though it may make it all the way through. Um, and a lot of them did. Let that let that be a lesson. Uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of people who listen to the show who are writers themselves, uh, and let that be a lesson to you if you're listening. Like, go ahead and make the demo good. Make the demo quality yeah. um, because it, now, like what you're talking about, uh, it was kind of ahead of its time as far as you know. Now in 2018, we're looking at um, the the process of creating music being sort of more democratized. Than ever, uh, you know. If yeah. you've got if you've got a, a laptop, even a, even a phone, you can pull off some yeah. pretty amazing things uh, that Absolutely. were you know unheard of uh, you know thirty years ago. Um, yeah. And so let that be a let that be a lesson. Like go ahead and go ahead and make your stuff good because it could end up being the thing. You could capture uh, you know the spirit, the essence of of the idea, the story you're trying to tell, uh, even on something simple. And you don't you don't necessarily have to be in the big studio, you know, spending your life savings trying to make it happen. If you're if you're Absolutely. real and you're authentic and your songs are strong, you know, you can make it happen with what you have. Sometimes. I I think what you just. I just what you just said there. I wanted to jump in because you, one of the things you said was when the when the song is strong, and um, that's the key. You know, you don't want to. When when I was a young writer, you would finish anything. You would just see it all the way through because you were thrilled that you were finishing something. Right. But then, as the as the years went on, I started to think I really can only go really forward if the song, if the rudiments are really strong. That only comes, I think, and I don't mean this in an ego way, but through experience. In the early years, you have to get things just finished because you want to see the way the way you do it. But then all of a sudden, I would say, you know, well, not all of a sudden, but when I was working with other artists, I realized that strength of the initial song, strength of the melody, strength of the, the song itself, its core element is the first thing you really have to <laughs> concentrate on. Yeah. Um, and uh, once you go like, this has a really strong heart, then yes, I, I make the demo as truly great as you can it can't do you any harm it just can't do you any harm right. it will always impress yeah i want to i want to tag onto that too for you instrumentalists out there when you're recording record your warm-up or your sound check track because a lot of times yeah. the passion that you play with if you're like you can't duplicate that i know a lot of times when even rob records he'll he'll go ahead and start the recording process even if he's like okay we're just going to do this to check it and a lot of times you'll yep. capture something that you can't duplicate with your first run through. Absolutely. That's huge. That's huge. And I, that, you know, uh, that's, that is huge because that's when you're looking at spirit and, uh, and, and uh, you're going to capture something. The greatest engineers I ever worked with would be recording nearly everything that was happening. Even though when we were setting up, they'd be looking at, see, because ultimately, you know, when you're learning your trade, you, we would listen back and, or I play it to somebody I really trusted, and then they'd say, it doesn't sound quite as good as the first thing you played me a, a week ago. And you go, mm-hmm. oh, what is that? You know, and they, it's the feel, the word feel. It's the feel. And uh, I, that's a great thing you said there, is be aware that the first time somebody plays the guitar solo, the first time they play the pads, whatever they do first time as they're learning, capture it, because it's, it's, it's being done without being scrutinized too much. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to move a little bit into, we've kind of just shifted into a, a songwriting episode, but I'm <laughs> loving it. Um, <laughs> I do want to talk we, about we the album. We can go into cooking. We can go into sure. different things. Yeah. What, you know, what painting is, what, houses. I, I will go there. Studio snacks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, JP likes to ask all oh, our yeah. guests. I'll ask, this is my question. This is the one that I ask most everybody. 
So you're on tour and you go into a gas station. What is your gas station food of choice? Do you get like a candy oh. bar? Do you get a specific Coke product? What's your What's your gas station mm. food? This is as good a question as um, about the bass guitar. I'm very, <laughs> two for two. Very detailed. I'd have to say it would probably be a bag of nuts, some cashews. Or okay. Something. A little bit of salted cashews would probably get me back on the bus and... Uh, I'd be very content, you know, okay. and if they, had, if, they, if they delivered as they do these days, a nice cup of tea, as an Englishman, I would have my cashews and a cup of tea, and I think I'd be set up. Well, Outstanding. We'll have that on hand when you, when you get that. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we'll fax. We'll fax you a bag of nuts. We'll, and fax, a cup of tea. we'll fax you some yeah, cashews. I'm, I'm waiting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, so so getting getting into the album a little bit, you 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 come through a period where um, you decide, I, you know, I want to do something for myself, kind of on my own, uh, and 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 let your own um, sort of completed vision come out as a you know as yeah. a solo artist. Um, and and what comes out is you know this this masterwork, uh, which is in the House of Stone and Light. Um, the the first thing that I want to ask about, I've I've always been curious about this. I I feel like when I listen to the album that there are i call it the the three martins um i feel like there are are three sort of distinct personalities that you display on the album which come through primarily in your vocals um and i've always wanted to ask you about this there's there's what i will call martin prime uh (laughs) which would be um the the martin that you hear on in the house of stone and light uh put on your red dress put on your red Most of the songs I would put in the Martin Prime category, and then there is um, Tender Martin, uh, which is, which would be specifically on Light in Your Heart. It, it it's, it's such a different feel to your vocal take that it's so tender it almost sounds like a different person to me. You had the model touch. I was your secret fool. Through all the wasted words, I'd see you. And then there's and then there's edgy Martin, angry Martin, which comes through on Monkey in My Dreams to a degree that in, in yeah. the other direction it almost feels like a different person. There's so much kind of vitriol in in the vocals on that song. I'm just interested to know what um, if if that was an intentional uh, thing or if that was just something those songs brought out of you. Again, I think that's a a really perceptive question, and I, and I think you're right on. I mean, light in your heart. Why you? I think you're picking up on that. Was a, was the song that was pay, played to Mercury Records um, when they signed me? Okay. And it was a song that was written for other people to sing. Okay. And um, I'd done that demo thinking, 
I wasn't making a solo record at all. I, that was, uh, and I think that's why you've hit it the nail on the head. It was a vocal that was done thinking possibly another singer is going to sing it. And, uh, and um, my performance on that is not where I'd really um, concretely fallen into the album House of Stone and Light, which to me has this kind of yeah, uh, sense of uh, Gaelic funk uh, progressive soul. I know that's all fine, fine four things <laughs> yeah. that shouldn't work together. You know, um, I, I, uh, and I know you'll probably get this, guys, because you're very musical, but I, I can hear... In, in, in moments in House of Stone Light, because I'm a record fan, I would say I can hear Jimmy Cliff, uh, mm-hmm. I can hear Paul Simon doing um, uh, Mother and Child Reunion, I can hear Jimmy Cliff, Many Rivers, and yet I can hear um, uh, Jethro Tull and the ba 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 da 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 And what I pull off well as a vocalist, I'm not a, I, I have to do the stuff that I, that I is this kind of, uh, soulful Gaelic place, which I came from a very uh, coastal town near the near countryside. So people don't quite get it when I say folk, but there's a folk element in me um, where I can pull that off. Now, Lighten Your Heart was more of the R&B thing, and I was thinking, yeah, someone like Paul Young is going to sing this. This is a different kind of track, a Bonnie Raitt kind of thing. Um, and so when I went to play that track to the record company, they said, we just love the way that sounds. And I said, well, I'll probably sing it again. They're like, no, we just, we just love the way that sounds. Mm. Don't touch it. And then I'd say to my manager, you know, what do you think? He said, well, it's got a lot of passion in it. Uh, leave it. It's fine. It's, speak, it's saying it's truth. Then when you go to something like Monkey in My Dreams, um, I felt, and I, you, you've hit it right on the head, I go, what, if this was a vinyl record, what's the song that comes right in the middle of the record and it starts the second half? This is, again, a bit of a different kind of... It's an abomination to the rest of the record. It's from outside the planet. It's a dance song. And I was thinking, I need to liven up... The, and I'm being real real true here. I thought, I've got to get a bit of grit in here and liven this up because there's a lot of beauty in this record mm-hmm. and there's a lot of emotion. It's a very personal record. I literally made House of Stone and Light because I'd been with Robbie Robertson doing his solo record and a few people I'd worked with said, why don't you make a solo record? Everything you bring us, we like the way you sing. I go, I'm not really a singer. I do it because there's nobody else around, and I just want to present my ideas. But most, Robbie said to me, I can't believe you're not making your own record because some of this stuff is very moving, and it's you. And, so, and then my manager, Diane, had been with me for years, said there'll be a time when you want to do it. So I made House of Stone and Light really for the re- myself. Now, the, pub, the Mercury Records had, had the same A&R man, Bob Scoro, that brought me to Bernie Taupin, and he said, whenever you want to make a solo record, this is right when I was doing These Dreams, he said, come, come to me. I, I think you should do it. Mm. Well, you know, after These Dreams, a few years later, I turned up on his doorstep and said, I'm ready. And he was like, oh, my God, he is. Uh, <laughs> what, what did I promise him? So I made this record, <laughs> what the, I made this record really thinking. I'm at an older age here. You know, this isn't any 19-year-old kid. Um, I've been I've had a little bit of success. I'm going to make this for myself. And I've seen Robbie Robertson make his solo record in one small room at the at the village on his own. And I thought that's what I'm going to do. And I've met with a few musicians that can come and help me. Luckily, Phil Collins had been around me, the Blue Nile from Scotland, and Robbie Robertson himself. He said, you know, let's all get involved. But getting back to Monkey in My Dreams, that's the one song that I feel possibly does not stand in the record as a consistent thing. It was there thinking, oh, I need to energize people and I need to show a different kind of bite in me. And uh, Bernie, I wanted to work on the record. And so he did me these Light, light in Your Heart some time ago. 
monkey i said write me another one and he wrote monkey in my dreams and when i read the lyric i thought oh this is quite bitter this is this is a angular attack and um i'm gonna do this to liven up the record because um i felt in my gut that take the invisible house of stone and light i was made for you red dress um broken stairway there was a lot of in, internal um uh, it was a very personal record but it was also very slightly beautiful and slight and in a different kind of space Luckily, that era with, um, you know, uh, Melissa Etheridge, Hooting the Blowfish, it was the era when people played, when there was bands and music had touched a kind of folk, slightly folk element. And so the timing was right with it, although House was an unusual song. But I would have to say, if I played myself, if I played the whole record through and I came to Monkey, I'd probably say skip that one. Um, because <laughs> I, I think that one, the two you've picked, Lighten Your Heart and that, are which you're very perceptive those are the two songs that were are actually matched to you know songs like the door that's when i was doing that's when i knew what the album was there are two songs on the outside of that that core which i think are um next door neighbors to it they work but they're but they're next door neighbors they're not actually in the family quite and i think that's very perceptive of you oh that's that's really interesting uh, that's, that's been on my mind for 24 years. So thank you for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you, 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 you didn't miss it though. I mean, that's something, yeah, I don't, I'm not blowing this out of proportion, but you pointed at something which was a vocal that was done before the album was done. And you pointed at a song which was written to basically keep the record company and the A&R people going, Oh, he's alive. He goes, <laughs> There's a groove, you know? Um, and, uh, not so much of it, I would say, uh, a song as such where I was, where I eventually fell into uh, the rest of the record had a core to me. They, the other eight songs on the record to me are of one family. Those two are slightly knocking on the door to get in. Wow. Um, so the, the, the process of the album, you took uh, basically a couple of, is this over a couple of years that this came together and, and it just writing by yourself in your garage? Boy, I can't remember. That's um, even when you said the anniversary. I mean, tell you the truth, I was like, really, I, I can't remember. Um, no, I, you know, God, that's a tough question. I would imagine de- definitely a year because it took a long time to mix it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I would have definitely a year. I don't think it might not have been two years. Very difficult for me to answer that. I, I, I get a sense just feeling about it that it would have taken me how meticulous we were, and we were back on analog. You know, 48 right. track would take, so everything was a little slower. And um, yeah, I would have thought it was a year, maybe a year and a half, something like that. Okay. Um, I want to give a shout out. One of my one of my favorite parts of this album has always been uh, the drums. Um, mm. And you know, and a lot of people who are listening and who are especially who are familiar with the album uh, will know that Phil Collins did some work on it. Um, but yeah. but I want to give a shout out to Jimmy Copley. Uh, who was Good. the drummer for the Good. Blue Nile, I believe. Is it, right? Is it Copley? I'm sorry. No, no, he wasn't Blue Nile. He was Tears for Fears. Oh, he was Tears yeah. for Fears. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. And he, his, his drumming on this album is so incredibly tasteful and adds so much to the mix. Um, I, I, could you just fill us in on a little bit of his imprint on the record, uh, kind of the impact that he had as a drummer and where he, where he came in in the process? Because there's, so there's so many places yeah. where there's like interplay between uh, I think specifically at the end of House and Stone and Light, there's a there's kind of a riff yeah. that happens on the bass and the drums at the same time. I'm just interested to know how some of those things came into place. Well, I'd be delighted to talk about Jimmy. I, I, I'll be more than pleased to because um, he's integral to that to that record. Yeah, uh, uh, massive to that record. He's the heartbeat of the record. And in fact, before I recorded the record, 
I um, I'd worked with him with uh, with Tears of Fears, um, Kurt Smith on the Soda Record, and I can I can I linked him with Jimmy very well straight away. I thought this is my kind of drummer. He's the best at soul. Um, he's a whiplash drummer. He understands the funk. He was in a, um, many soul bands in England before I met him. And he played um, on the Seeds of Love album, I believe. And um, uh, he was just ex- outsta- outstanding, my kind of drummer. I just felt him. I just felt him. And he had a, had a feel that I just thought was amazing. Um, uh, this, and so after working with Kurt Smith on his solo record, I... From those sessions, two Tears for Fears musicians came into the picture, Jimmy and his good friend, Neil Taylor, on guitar, who played guitar on the record mm-hmm. and, and toured with me. And both Jimmy and Neil went out and toured House of Stone and Light with me. Now, um, when I was writing House of Stone and Light, I knew that um, most of my songs, all my hits, have been based very, very subconsciously on rhythm. I think it's a huge connection to people. And... Um, I brought Jimmy over three weeks before I recorded House of Stone, like just him and me in a rehearsal studio, just him and me. And I just went through, I'd sent him the cassettes of the songs. He basically learned them from feel. Then when he came across for three weeks, I just went into rehearsal studio, played, uh, had a, a um, cassette of the pads plan, just the chords, and I would play live bass with him. Mm. And we would rehearse constantly, just the two of us. Then I took him into the studio and recorded just him. Just him on top of my multi-tracks, which were just me, my, my demos as mm-hmm. such. So I laid him down first with, with, with on top of the demos I'd made for House of Stone. Like, I just focused on him. And um, he was an incredibly spiritual man. So he, he knew what the House of Stone and Light was about. Now to jump forward, um, and I may as well jump forward now, over the last year, I've been building these songs, which um, I decided I've been making a lot of solo records just on my own, doing the Stevie Winwood thing, playing all the instruments. Now, it just seemed that all the people that had worked on House of Stone and Light arrived into my life again last year. Um, and so I had these songs brewing, and I thought, well, what the heck? This, these songs seem to be quite special. And all the players are arriving. Um, the guitarist, Neil Taylor, Brian Fairweather from my first band, um, uh, Jack Hughes from Wang Chung who played on the album he, he was in town and I thought, thought oh I've got to have Jimmy I've got to have Jimmy I'll fly Jimmy over I'm just going to do it I'm just, uh, there's no record company involved but we're doing special songs I'm going to do another another brotherly song to House of Stone and Life and um, unfortunately I reached out to Jimmy and Jimmy was thrilled to do it but he um, he had leukemia and it brought us to our knees that he was fighting leukemia um, when he was in the hospital, I sent him the tracks because his girlfriend said, you know, he's, this is going to lift him. And then when he's fit enough, we're going to fly him over. He's going to stay with you, Martin, and we'll do the drums on the new album. And he fought and he fought and he fought. And I, uh, he came out of it and it looked like he was going to do it. We got the files to him in London. He couldn't travel, but he was going to do them in London. And then, unfortunately, he passed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we lost him. And uh, before we did that, you know, I separated his drums out for him on the House of Stone and Light album and sent him to, sent them to him so he could just hear how wonderful he played on his himself. And uh, we did actually put on, it is on Facebook. You can just hear his performance without anything on. If you go back and look through my throwback Thursdays and when we lost Jimmy, I wanted to really hear how. And, and Jimmy said to me before he passed, he said one of the most incredible albums he's ever been involved with, with House of Stone Light. He said, I really felt that. And it's the best I've played. Now, this is a, ridiculous for me to hear from this great guy because he was, he's been with Jeff Beck. You know, he's been with uh, Free and 
Paul Rogers, and and yet he seemed, and here I am, you know, under the radar a little bit, and he still said that was such a special record to do. Now, um, some of the tracks that he played on um, before he, that we didn't use, I've still got, and um, I may um, bring those out down the line because um, a lot of the stuff he played on was always phenomenal. But you've you've picked on something again, which was the in, integral uh, heart of House of Stone and Light. He really. I, I, I know drummers. I know how I feel I feel them. And I, I know how I can see Manu Cachet have Billy Cobham. I know drummers. Because I'm a bass player. I just know when I, what yeah. I feel. Yeah. And I'm, when I came across Jimmy, I thought, here we are. This high staccato snare is going to really work well in my voice. And, um, you know, Jimmy played outstanding throughout the record. Um, and one of his idols was, was Phil Collins. When he was a young kid, Phil Collins used to rehearse in his dad's uh, garage or something. So uh, wow. um, Phil Collins was in town, and I'd had uh, Paul Joseph Moore, keyboard player from the Blue Nile, a very a tremendous Scottish, uh, unknown Scottish band to a great degree. And um, Phil Collins loved the Blue Nile, and I said, well, would you love to play on these tracks? And, we, and Phil came along and played on too. So I really had... Two of the greatest drummers um, for me, the way because I see, I see Phil Collins as a lyrical drummer, you know, a great a great mm. song drummer like Ringo. He understands what the song's about. And Jimmy is the most um, the best drummer I've ever been around, and I've been around them all for um, delicacy of feel, great power, but delicacy of of soul and funk. You know, I mean, he uh, you pick you know House of Stone like drum drum part. He was very very pleased with, but he used to get off because people would say oh that house is down light record that must be a drum machine you know because wow. he's in the in the b section he's hitting his ride you know da 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 he's going at high speed if you listen to his kick it's ridiculous and he goes they all think it's a drum machine it's me it's me <laughs> they don't understand and um, he was known for for being one of the why tears for fears used him and a lot of people wanted to work with him is you could send him a drum file that you've programmed see house is down like that drum machine i programmed that, that rhythm and the kick is very un- unusual the the uh, drum uh, bass pattern mm-hmm. and he he's one of the magicians at, uh, at emulating what what um comp uh, very complicated drum machine programs could do so with tears for fears whenever they program their very strange drums he would be able to emulate it and take it on the road live and if you ever i mean you're obviously musicians yourself if you listen to what he's playing on the kick on his f- foot it's hard hard to conceive that that isn't a program piece um <laughs> So I would send him these tracks, you know, very complex drum machine tracks, thinking he's probably going to even out the kick, you know. Right. And he'd say, no, 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 I know what that's about. And in fact, not to knock anybody here, but when I, once I was in the studio with Phil Collins, I, I said, do you fancy playing a track, Shape the Invisible, that Jimmy Copley played? You know, he goes, I said, just to see what we get. And I played him what it was, you know, and it was Jimmy playing it with a, a very strange drum rhythm, a bass kick at time. And Phil said, I'm not going to play that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm going to go straight through it like a train. I'm just gonna, and he did, you know. He played it like, a, you know, Tur- um, Turn It On by Genesis. Uh-huh. But you, I instantly knew that Phil was listening to to Jimmy, and I told Jimmy this because Jimmy idolizes Phil at his time. And he, I said he, he wouldn't even attempt it. He said, that's a little uh, not going to work for me. And we know how, how incredible Phil Collins is. That's the greatest compliment you can give. To, yeah, yeah, and I, I can't, I can't. We only lost Jimmy last year, so I'm very pleased to talk about him because um, lovely man, a gentleman, and I was so near to bringing him over this year to, to do it again, and we just lost him, and uh, it's a great loss. I'm so sorry to hear that. I, you know, I, okay. I wasn't uh, yeah. wasn't familiar with that end of the story. Um, 
So that's that is. And if any of you found so any any of you, I appreciate that, and that's lovely to talk about him because um, he mustn't be forgotten. But um, if any of your listeners want to go back into my Facebook and go back through the files, you know, last year there is a a lot about him, and there is the solo track of House of Stone and Lie, just him playing with a very distant pad the way he learned the song, so you can really hear the finesse of him. Really who is strong. going to play drums on the? Who, who can we expect well, this to is, hear? Well, this, this, this is wonderful, actually, because before Jimmy passed away, um, I'd got back into touch with Trevor Thornton. Oh yeah, from Q Phil. Yeah, yeah, and um, Jimmy knew Trevor, and, and uh, they spoke, and, and uh, Jimmy said, "If I can't get there, Trevor, you know, I, that'd be great if you did it." And uh, Trevor's played on the whole record, fantastic. I mean, you know, Jim, Tre- Trevor knew what Jimmy was about to do. And uh, we I were, like Trevor's uh, work on a- on the Asia stuff. Asia, so, yeah. yeah. So I, I'm playing, a Trevor Thornton fan. He, that's brilliant because um, he's with me. You know, he's with me tomorrow, and uh, he's played on the whole new album where Jimmy was going to play. And we even waited for two tracks for J- for Jimmy to do, and Jimmy couldn't get across, and Trevor finished those. But Trevor's playing out of this world. That's awesome. And has and he has you know Trevor played on the House of Stone and Light on In My Room. Um, and it was lovely because um, he went off with Asia and went off with all these other bands. And then um, we've, we've, we've regrouped. And Brian Fairweather from Qfil, he's come back to play guitar on the new record. And so is Jack Hughes. So is Neil Taylor, who was on the album predominantly. And I'm thinking about reaching out to Bill Dillon, who played on guitar, who I met Robbie Robertson. Were. So if this, this record that I'm working on, you know, which won't come out till next year, um, has all the ingredients uh, and will be dedicated to to Jimmy Copeland. Outstanding. And this is yeah. huge, huge, exciting news for us that you're working not only on a new record and actually, I guess, two new records at the moment. Uh, and, yeah. But but that but that one is uh, you mentioned earlier, kind of a uh, a companion almost uh, to to it House is. of Stone and Light. It is. Um, it, it definitely is. And I'm not just saying that. You know, I've done six albums since there, but mm-hmm. this this has turned into a different thing. Um, in fact. Um, what, why it turned into it was I was writing these songs and then Jimmy Copley's girlfriend said, what would lift him in hospital is to hear some of your new stuff if you're going to do it. So I sent him these songs and um, he, it lifted him. You know, the best thing these songs could do is he said, I just got to get fit and healthy to play on this. This is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then Jack Hughes from Wang Chung, who's a good friend of mine, he dropped into town and he heard these songs and he's a, you know, he's a, he's, a super musician, and he said, "I've never heard and you've you've, you've really outplayed you, yourself here. This is these this is, I want to play on this. This is amazing." Mm-hmm. And um, I, everybody was pushing me because these songs I'd written just from a spiritual place. And then um, I'm not just saying this. I just think it's the strongest batch of songs. And I'm not just saying this. I, I actually why it's driving me crazy because <laughs> this is going to take me two to three years to finish. It's become a real hard thing to finish because the musicians have played on it. And they've done such great parts, and the songs won't let me just get past them. They're they're like it was when I was doing House of Stone, and like there's something hugely um, spiritual in it. And as my age now, I don't want to work as hard. Yeah. But this, uh, but these, the songs are making me work really hard, and I have to stop, back away, and come in, you know, and uh, work on it with with the right vision. At my age now, you know, you like to move along at quite nifty speed, but this album. Um, Take a break, get some freedom. cashews, have a hot tea. And <laughs> Actually, um, that yeah. hasn't helped at all, mate. No, that <laughs> hasn't helped. Uh, no, it's, no, but it is. It's one of those projects where, you know, I'm putting another album out in front of it because this one is like I can't finish it in time. It's, it takes a lot of intricacy. But 
Um, I know myself when I play uh, all ten songs together, I go, "This is the best work I've done, um, bar anything since since that period." You know, so I know it. Everybody around me knows it. I've just got to give it the right right chance to to see to see fruition. You know. That's if there's t- one record I got to finish, it's <laughs> got to be that one before I die. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a question about sort of your 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 catalog, um, and then I, uh-huh. I, and I have just one or two more questions for you. You've been so generous with your time, and we oh, really I've appreciate had a lot it. Of fun, mate. Um, a lot of fun. Going t- speaking of your catalog, you've you've taken several steps over your career toward a kind of musical autonomy. At first, you were at first it was focusing on solo writing, uh, you know, for uh, focusing on uh, in the House of Stone and Light, and then going even further into that by you know playing all the instruments on subsequent records. Um, yeah. If it's possible for you to kind of parse this out, which of your albums feels most like yourself? To you, if if you had to give someone one copy of one Martin Page album, what would it be to represent yourself? Boy, 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 that's just a, such a hard question because I'm a real chameleon. Um, the six albums I've done solo, away from House of Sound and Light, it's really they're all part of me. I mean, I'm a I could I'm I can do a reggae album. I could do a. I've done a you know, temper of peace, which is a very, very folk oriented record where I just yeah. picked up the, stayed with an acoustic guitar for a while. Yeah. Uh, Hotel of the Two Worlds is me going back to when I was in South Carolina, when my dad, as I was saying to you, when I was brought across to all the air bases, so it was all all soul mm-hmm. and the kind of hybrid of where I used to write with Earth, Wind, and Fire. And um, this new one, you know, is back to the House of Stone and Light, which seems to have this. Um, it, Celtic um, uh, traditional feel about it, but yet, and yet it's highly rhythmic. Uh, really, really hard. Um, I wish, and then now, you know, I put out all the ballads because, as you pointed out, I tend to be a big romantic on the slender sadness. I probably have to say the best way I could answer this is, um, although it's not on my own label, and it was the one I did on Mercury. Yes, House of Stone and Light um, was seen through uh, um, to touch a lot of the real uh, colors of me. Um, and the other ones I've done at uh, solo records since then have all had various aspects of me. Uh, I know we're about to talk about the new record I'm doing, which is an instrumental record, but I'd probably say the, mo- the one that probably has my, my color so much and finished off the way I wish I could have done it with all the musicians and with great engineers and uh, big budgets, I'd probably say House of Stone and Light um, is, is the nearest where you're going to sense what I'm about. But you see, I'm a bit of a, I'm very hard for people to read because I'm, you know, I'm full of d- different styles of music. So, you know, if you listen to a, a Temper of Peace, you'll hear a song like um, Ruby Ray or um, a song like um, I'll Grow Old With You. And it's pure folk. It's mm-hmm. pure me going back to Donovan in that period. And then you'll listen to something like Hotel of the Two Worlds and hear Standing on the Rock and it's pure funk. Right. Um, but I think where I shine the best is what I'm doing now with the new, the new, the new record I was talking about, the musicians, is where I, I think I'm not explaining this properly, but there's a sense that you could be listening to a, the ghost of Stevie Winwood meeting Peter Gabriel meeting Sting meeting a reggae band, Toots and the Matos. There's something in there where I can sing and really pull it off. And, and as I've grown older, I've become very much more emotional in my lyrics. So House of Stone Light was the beginning of that. And um, I've got more, uh, more uh, confident about my lyric writing, and, and, and it 
and I think I'm able to portray more now lyrically about. I mean, it's, it's a luxury, you know. I have my own little label. Right. Obviously, I'm under the radar, and we're not. We haven't. It's not the same era, and uh, everybody has their day. But I'm still got a little a consistent following um, that allows me to do the kind of records I want. And I grew up, you know. This might mean something to you, but in in the '70s, which is a seminal period to me when I when I wasn't writing, but I was learning and playing in bands. In England, it was the old Grey Whistle Test, and it was bands. It was players, so it was the average white band. It was Little Feet. It it was Earth, Wind and Fire. It was the Doobie Brothers, people that played. Yeah. And so, in, when I'm making an album now, I think I'm making an AOR record. I think I'm making a Dire Straits record. I think I'm making a Sutherland Brothers and Quiver record. I think I'm making um, an early uh, Peter Gabriel record. I, I think that's how I see albums, and that's so. I think that. That's what I'm still doing. The kind of time, going out and buying the next Yes record in the 70s, you know, uh, uh, thinking about the musicianship and thinking about the players. So I think House of Stone and Light, um, some, is, you could really relate it to, uh, although it was the 90s, you could relate it to what was happening in the 70s where we had a TV show called The Old Grey Whistle Test where you would have Midnight Special mm-hmm. where the bands came on like Steve Miller and played. And that's, I tend to be still, I don't, I don't feel like I'm old fashioned, but I still think I'm making a record that I'm making albums, not the odd download, the odd right. track that excites people. I think I'm trying to make a piece of work. Um, I really, when you started this conversation, I really took, it was a big compliment that I feel like it's an, when you have an album that you don't, you always keep on the side of the, you know, I'll always keep a certain like six albums that I never want to really I'll always pull them out at a certain time to go, my God, that's great. So I'm always, always trying to make that kind of record where it's an album. Um, I know it's not the era of the album, but I do tend to think that I'm making that art college, university, late 70s musical with a hit or two hits on it, but mm-hmm. a really good record. You know, um, that's what I still motivates me. And may it be the album that ushers in the new era of the album, because let me I'd tell like you, to think that. Yeah, I, I miss yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I miss good. You know, we, we still, we, we've still got in Hollywood here. We've still got Amoeba, and I was in there yesterday. And you know, there's a whole room full of um, kids buying vinyl, um, and there's, it, it's wonderful to see. I think that's a little bit of a, and I don't think it's because I'm, I'm older and I'm going like, oh, in my day. <laughs> but I think the the the, the magic of um, albums and the way people revered them when you bought a Joni Mitchell record or a Jackson Brown record you lived with every aspect of it you looked at the musicians you looked at the the instruments they played you looked at who wrote the songs you looked at the studios they were in it was a wonderful magical time for people that were falling into every aspect of uh, music you know yeah Absolutely. Well, um, I, I have I have one more. I, I know we're we're gonna let you go. Uh, I, I have I do have one uh, yeah, more. Yeah, I have any, I have many cashews, mate. I'm getting a little bit. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're gonna need your uh, your stand in here in just a second. <laughs> um, I uh, I do have. I mentioned at the at the uh, onset of the interview, and so I just want to make sure I, I I get into it for just a second. Uh, but I've yeah. you know I said I, this is my. Uh, I can listen to this album front to back over and over and over, but there's there's one song on here that uh, that if I skip a song, it's the one, um, ah. and that would be that would be in my room. In my room, I can hear her fight his kiss. In my room, I hear him bring down his fist. Still at night. I hear my mother cry 
not because it's not a great song, but because it's almost too good. It's it's such a hard song to listen to. Um, mm. And I and I don't know if you want to get you know if you want to tell the backstory of the song or, or anything like that, but uh, it, it's a it's such a hard song um, that it it just because I have to be in the right mm. place to be able to listen to it. Does that make sense? I think it does. Yeah, I, I think I know where you're coming from with that because it's a it's an emotional lyric. It's yeah. a, my, it was based on my, on my mother's um, own life story, where she when she was a little girl, she had to hide under the stairs when um, her surrogate dad used to come home drunk every night. And so um, she when in her later years, my mother when she told me that you know that was what she still was a nightmare to her that she could hear. Um, while she hid under uh, in, under the stairs, she could hear her mother being hit by her father. You know, alcoholism, and so um, uh, you know, she told me about it. I sat down at the keyboard one day, and and, and that song popped out. And um, a lot of ladies I know, and a lot of women, when that record came out, so it related to that because they have the same stories. And um, my mother couldn't listen to the song when I finished it as well. She would just say, "Why did you write that?" You know, almost like that's opening up the door. Mm. Um, she, it, she she didn't mean it in a bad way because she was a great she was a great believer in my stuff, and uh, she had the great knack of saying that. If I was writing something, she'd go, "Keep that. That's good. <laughs> this is good. Throw that away. That's not good." So, uh, but that song because you know I was writing a solo. So House of Stone and Light was a very intimate record. Um, the, in House of Stone and Light itself was about me going to the Grand Canyon and trying to clear my mind from working too hard in L.A. And it was about, you know, getting myself fit and healthy and looking after. I saw the house and, and Stone and Light as my own body and uh, the way I would, um, you know, uh, get strength in my spirit. So that was a true story. And my room's a true story. And, um, you know, so there was a my, that song. I can understand why you might find that a little bit um, that way. You know, it's, uh, I know some, I don't think it's an easy song to listen to. I don't think it's a song you're going to go along singing. And it's a bit of a decoptomy because it's a quite a memorable little melody and it could be a Phil Collins kind of nice track. Yep. But there's a lyric in there which is saying, uh, making another statement. So I can see where you're coming from. I thought you were going to say Monkey in My Dreams because it was so, um, so odd to the rest of the record, but that's an interesting thing. Are you saying that because it's emotionally a little bit too much? Yeah, of a nail? It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it just touches. You know, it touches a spot that if you're if you're off guard, it can it can you know put you in a uh, yeah. put you in a strange place. In a funny kind of way, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. All right, we'll uh, we'll 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 ramp toward the end here, uh, but I want to I want to make sure that that everyone who's listening is clear that you have not one but two new projects in the works at the moment, um, and you've, yeah, you've talked a little bit about the full band record, uh, but that is going to be preceded uh, by something a little different from you. You want to tell everybody about that? Absolutely, a little different. I mean, um, a left field turn. Yeah, I've got an, an album coming out in October, which I'm incredibly. Uh, thrilled about um i've had to warn my fans i've done a few pre-videos to let them know like don't buy this if you think it's what you know of me (laughs) and and yet i think in some ways people will get it i've i've been a huge fan through my life of um experimentation and music tangerine dream cluster um faust in my year when i was at art college i liked instrumental music obviously i'm a pop boy i write songs but i but over my years, I've built the studio with the keyboards of the light, you know, analog, old analog keyboards and reverbs and echo units. And I decided um, it was the right time for me to express myself um, just purely musically without singing. Although there is one song on this new album that I do sing. Um, so I did a, a totally instrumental record called The, called the Amber of Memory. And um, 
It's uh, an experimentation into going into, uh, an, uh, it sounds heavy, but it's an ex- existential side of me where I'm dealing with really the uh, technology against nature, where we are now, and, and impermanence, because I do a lot of Buddhism. And I think I've um, created a very special um, instrumental record, um, and we, we will be releasing that in October, and I couldn't be more happy with it. I, ha- I do think some of my fans are going to stare at it and go, what the hell is this? <laughs> it's like, Dave, like David Bowie doing you know, One Side of Low, where they were like, why, why did he do that? But I, there's a lot of dark beauty in it, and because as a songwriter... In my demos and in my records, I would always work very hard at doing the different layering and creating atmospheres, um, even in the demos and the recordings of these dreams. When I'm looking at chordal progressions, I, I do hear oceans of mood. And um, I wanted to do that. And my manager heard some of the things I was working on and said, this is pretty exceptional. And um, I think some of your fans are, are going to get this. Obviously, it's a uh, art gallery kind of release. Sure. It's very low-key. Um, but it's something I have to do because it's something I can do and I'm allowed to do it, have my own label. And um, it'll be coming out in October. I couldn't be more pleased with it. But um, I will have to warn people that, um, you know, they have to be take this with a, a different vision. Because I, if people are going to go, oh, it's another Martin Page album with all the songs on. Right. Um, that's, co- that's coming next year. This is going to be, <laughs> you know, it's funny. We've been talking about it. How many different, when you said, what is you? Uh, and and some of the instrumentals feel really like me. Um, and I'm a huge fan of classical music and modern classical music like uh, Arvo Part and Tavener and Gorecki. So this is just another avenue, which at my age as well, I felt like I'm really into the... It's funny because I'm experimenting with the keyboards the same way I did in the 80s when everybody wanted to work with us because we were English guys that used synthesizers. Right. And, <laughs> and I've sort of gone back into that and said, listen to this. This is so incredible what we're doing here. We're creating fantasies. So um, we're putting it out, and we'll see how it does. If, it, if, if I do get a good response from, from it, um, there are other things that have been brewing in that way as well. But um, that'll be, that's all ready to go. So we're, we're just getting ready to put that out. Outstanding. Can't wait to hear it. I'm a big, big fan of instrumental Thank music you. myself. Uh, uh, we actually, oh, you are? JP and I have oh, made yeah. some and we, we, you know, make some on our we, own and we, I make some it, myself. So I'm, I'm oh. really excited to hear it, to hear, to hear you say that was a big, big thing. I like that. Good, 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 good. Yeah. My manager says you're going to be surprised. You're going to get a new audience with this because, uh, and the people that have been working around me, they, they, um, they feel the same way. They said, this is, um, you, you, you mustn't be too defensive about this because you're changing the style here. Um, but we quickly said, we've got to put some songs out straight after just to save the day. <laughs> sure. The safety net. <laughs> you know, I used to always feel when Peter Gable did Temptation of Christ, I really got into it. I really got into Birdie. And sometimes some of my artists that I've always loved, I thought I wouldn't mind them just getting lost in a studio and doing something very, very experimental and breaking the laws. You know, I'm, I'm very trained as a songwriter. And, and so there are a lot of routines that we go through as songwriters. When I wrote this album, I did not use any of those laws. I, I basically stripped myself bare and experimented and improvised. And I was amazed at what I found because there was a different, different um, musicality that I was not aware of, even though I was a, quite a, a well-known pop writer. I went into different um, scales, different tones, different chords, different um, ways of looking at things. And uh, it all came together in a very spiritual place. So sometimes if, if somebody 
I really loved, you know, as an artist, if I heard that they had something like that around the edges, I'd want to get it because I'd be very interested in what was inside them. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. As, yeah. as somebody well, at, least you, you, at least you two are going to buy it. Exactly. That's that. right. You, you got, got two sold. Yeah, that's right. Two, <laughs> pre, pre-sale copies. We'll, we'll get them. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today. I, oh, I just my pleasure. Can't, you know, just want to say again, what a big deal this is for, for us and, and, uh, um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I hope uh, if you're listening out there and this is your introduction to Martin Page, uh, go through the whole discography. Just all, all great stuff from uh, from Q feel on. Uh, you know, just go back and discover it all, and um, you know, get those get those uh, get those albums on iTunes and uh, and add them to your collection. Because let me tell you, they're worth having. Um, Pick up the 1985 movie Girls Just Want to Have Fun with Sarah Jessica Parker and <laughs> Helen Hunt because Dancing in Heaven is all in it. God, you guys are really good. I'm <laughs> now I'm getting a little nervous that you're going to say something like, oh my God, they found that too. <laughs> we do our best. We do what we can. Um, hey, well, that was, it's been great fun. And um, you asked some questions, especially about Jimmy Cope, the drum. I'm very, very uh, glad that I had a chance to talk about him. So it's a great interview. Well, thank you so much. so much, and uh, and we we wish you all the best, continued success in everything. These two new upcoming albums and and everything else you may have coming down the pike. Uh, we just hope the best for you, and uh, we're we're grateful for what you brought into the world. So, thank you again for thank being you with so us, much, Martin. Guys. And the same for you. Stand by the fax machine. We'll be sending you our lyrics soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Martin. Thanks, buddies. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Bye bye. So yeah, that just happened. I'm freaking out, man. I normally let Rob bring us back in, but he's over there in the corner sweating and <laughs> w- coming back to reality from what just happened. This man. was a uh, quite the quite the experience for us. Listen, I may so. have to take a week off. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no. oh my gosh. So we hope y'all enjoyed that as much as we did cuz we had a blast with that and thanks again to Martin for doing that yeah. for us. That was so cool. Let me tell you something. Here's what I've learned. If you're starting a podcast, Reach out to some people that you want to talk to. Reach out to them on Twitter. Send them a DM on Facebook. Like the, people will just talk to you sometimes. Sometimes your people that you really admire are just w- totally willing and ready to to talk to you. And I feel like one of our favorite things about this interview is that we feel like Martin kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. Like you know he he got a kind of got a kick out of some of the stuff that we were asking and talking about and and uh, you know so like maybe this is our way to give back. Yeah. And let us know what you guys think as a follow-up. We know we did the Billy Vera one, and we got lots of good feedback on that. Yeah. And ho- hopefully you guys enjoyed this as well, too. Yeah. So just let us know so we know kind of what angle you want to go. We're probably going to do these anyway because we like it. Oh, man. So this yeah, was, Why would we not? This was great for us. But, but who would you like to hear from? Yeah, you tell know? us who you want us to reach out to. We can't make with, any guarantees. Within reason. But we'll try. I mean, we know that we know that JP got, got, uh, got autographs from U2 and Coldplay just by asking a whole lot. Yeah, and so, like— We'll do. You we'll know, try. We'll do, we we'll do the best we can. We we won't aim that high, but uh, <laughs> keep it in reality. But let us know yeah, who you'd like to. Uh, We're going to interview Jesus next week. <laughs> I talk to him every day. <laughs> so uh, thank you guys again for listening. Um, yeah. Yeah. We don't. We're kind of <laughs> wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us. iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify. Thank you so much for being out there. Tell somebody about the show if you love it. Go on iTunes. Give us that uh, that five star rating and that glowing review, and smash that subscribe button, fam. Uh, until next time, I'm Rob. I'm JP JD Mosier. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen Come to the music. <laughs> <laughs>